hello and welcome to The Urbanist. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... The acoustic properties are performance-driven. It's a building type that needs to look great, but also perform really well. How does sound influence your city? This week, we explore how music, acoustics and all things sound shape our urban environments and how planners, developers and architects can use it to create better places to live in. We'll discover a new music and art centre in a refugee camp in Uganda. Stop by Nebraska to explore a purpose-built concert venue where sound and space are treated as one and get a tour of the Athens Conservatoire as we hear about its plans for the future. Plus, why London's Denmark Street continues to be the one-stop destination for guitar players around the world. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. We'll start today's programme in Uganda. Music can be a powerful tool to connect people, both with one another and also with the place that they call home. This was the starting point behind the creation of the Bidi Bidi Music and Art Centre, based in the continent's largest refugee settlement, home to some 270,000 South Sudanese refugees. So how can architects use their craft to reframe the narrative around what it means to be a refugee? And how can a new creative space help with a sense of belonging? At this year's London Design Biennale, Monocle's Sophie Monohun-Coombs spoke to those behind the project to find out more. Bidi Bidi is a place in northern Uganda. It's actually near the South Sudanese border. And the reason why it's there is that it's the world's second largest refugee settlement. So we have a lot of refugees coming from South Sudan settling in northern Uganda, in Bidi Bidi. It's about 270,000 people living there on quite a large area, but very, very densely populated. Xavier de Castellia is an architect and head of design at Hassel Architects. Today, we're at the London Design Biennale, where he's exhibiting a project based in Bidi Bidi. It's a music and art centre which looks to be completed by the end of this year. Xavier's collaborator, Rachel Ferguson, head of human insights at to.org, a platform which empowers people and businesses through the two sides of the organisation, tells me more about how the project emerged from her conversations with the local community. I first went there in 2018 and I was really interested in what was going on with the creative community that we could support. And it turned out that all the young people told me that music is so central to the culture they grew up with. And so most of those 270,000 refugees in BDBD, it was rural farmland seven years ago. In 2016, with the crisis in South Sudan, it suddenly became the biggest refugee settlement in Africa, the second largest in the world. And so there are huge NGOs there. Healthcare, medical, education, food, these are all handled by the big guys, but there's boredom. On a recent trip in October, refugees in BDBD told me that during COVID, with lockdown, the lack of opportunity, the lack of things to do, boredom, there was an increase in suicide rates among young people. For us, if we can provide a place for refugee youth to process trauma, to process the PTSD that has naturally occurred in their lives as a result of having to flee war, and if we can provide things for them to do to prevent idleness then it's a huge service to the community. We're helping people overcome trauma. 
We're giving them resources to be creative, to express themselves, to show who they are, to show their identities, and then opening it up to the world. Hassel and TO.org have worked with a local organisation on the project, and it's employed a mixture of local Ugandan labourers and refugees in order to try to foster deeper relationships between the groups. But how does the building actually operate? The centre is a big ellipse, elliptical building, and we have on one side, we have the performance area, we have a a big amphitheatre. We also want to make sure the amphitheatre gets used by as many people as possible, so the building opens up, there's big folding doors in the back of it that open up for more hundreds of people to kind of like add to the audience. On the left-hand side, we have a recording studio. On the right-hand side, we have the music classroom. And if you go to the front of the building here, as you see, there's this round structure. That is where all the rainwater gets collected. Why do we need to do that? Well, there's no running water. There's no sanitation on this side. So us building a big building with a big roof, we thought, well, we better collect all that rainwater, collect it centrally so it gets really celebrated. And then the community can collect that rainwater only a few hundred meters down on the main road. So the building is a community center, is a cultural building, but at the same time, it actually provides something else for the community. There are fascinating, innovative aspects like the type of bricks that are used. The bricks is an interesting story because, of course, we want to build as sustainable as possible. Normally, bricks, when you get them, you fire them. They need a lot of energy for that. Now, this is a refugee settlement where there's a lot of deforestation happening because there's so many people living in such a kind of proximity. So we didn't want to use more wood and energy to fire those bricks. So what we did is we worked with local works, which is a local architecture practice, and now also the contractor on the project. And what we're doing is we're pressing the bricks. So we kind of compressing them. We're adding a little bit of lime to it. And we're having these hand presses, which means the bricks can be fabricated on site with local soil and with local labor. So we're actually employing, besides having a big contractor there, our local contractor, we also have local people from the community helping in building and pressing about 50,000 bricks. Now, the bricks don't just kind of provide the structure for the walls. We want to do as much as we can with those bricks. Um, Recording studios normally need very complicated treatment on the walls to do diffusion absorption of the sound. So what we thought to do, well, let's not do that. Let's not bring in and ship stuff in. Let's actually use the local bricks as much as we can. So as you see here on this little mock-up that we have, you see these bricks kind of sticking out. Well, the geometry of these bricks helps diffusing the sound. And we can also see there's like a gap on the back. Well, that actually helps for absorbing the sound into the cavity of the wall. So we have absorption and diffusion happening at the same time. So that really gives our recording studio, classroom and performance area the acoustical performance that it needs to have. There is so much that has gone into the planning of this building, from its inception to its creation and how it will eventually be used. Here's Rachel again. So I think for us, this has been the sort of community building community-driven aspect of this project is bringing people together, creating community within community and providing sustainable infrastructure 
for people who are going to live in this settlement for some time, you know, people don't spend six months in refugee settlements, they spend years. Some people spend generations of their families in, in settlements. And so making sure this is a place where community can thrive and where young people can take advantage of opportunities. Refugee communities face many complicated challenges, from the basic necessities of everyday life to getting an education and finding employment. I asked Xavier why he's so passionate about using architecture to help refugees pursue their creative interests in particular. Bidi Bidi is about 270,000 people. It has no cultural buildings. It has not really a centre to talk about, a civic centre. And I myself, I come from a city of 270,000 people, Ghent in Belgium. It has a design museum, it has an opera, it has a modern art museum, it has everything, right? And I, for me, thinking, well, well, that community also needs its own special buildings, I feel. And, you know, I actually use some of the skills I've had from previous practices where we often kind of use very complex buildings and be able to rationalize them, actually make buildable. And I kind of use those skills in this part of the world as well to be able to kind of make a building that might look quite complex because it has a big curved roof and all that. But at the end of the day, it's actually rationalized to very simple bits of steel and bricks and local material. It just put together in a slightly different way. So, yeah, for me, this is really the most important project I'm working on now and probably the most important project I ever worked on. Javier de Castellier there. In that report from Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, this is The Urbanist. Now we're in Greece, where recent renovations and redevelopments at the Athens Conservatoire have transformed the already storied structure into a hopeful hub for the city's creative scene. The original building, designed by the only Greek architect to have lived in the Weimar Republic in the Bauhaus era, was never fully realised. But, as we find out, the country's leading performing arts institution is about to enter a new dawn. On a scorching morning in the capital, our contributor Paige Reynolds got a tour of the refurbished premises with the Conservatoire's president, Nikos Souklos. Here's what she found. On the June morning, I arrive at the Athens Conservatoire. The 14,000 square metre light-filled modernist structure provides a welcome refuge from the city's rising heat. However, take a step inside and it's clear there's much more to this building than its cooling properties. Built in 1976 by pioneering Greek architect Iannis Despotopoulos, the Conservatoire has both an intriguing past and redevelopment plans that promise an exciting future. Here to show me around is president of the Conservatoire, musician and professor Nikos Souklos. This building had been left unfinished for something like five decades. And these last years there has been a, an initiative for the completion of the building. Right now we are in this part, which includes the venues, artistic but also commercial venues. It's a very important part of the building, strategically important, because its role in the sustainability of the whole operation is extremely important. So this has been finished in October 22, and since then it has been going very strong. So this amphitheater has been one of the best kept secrets of this city because it existed in a state of raw concrete, has never been used until now, 
and uh, we are very proud of it. 600 seats, very adequate for classical music, but also for electronic sound, for conferences, for corporate events. And lots of things have already happened here these last months, which is a very good uh, sign that uh, this is going to function the, the way we thought it would. <laughs> Before we continue the tour, I tried to understand why this impressive venue, one that's already in its short time of operation proven so integral to the city's creative life, was left unfinished for so many years. Why things were left that way is certainly strange. This is not a project that has happened somewhere in the province, some crazy guy that overestimated his uh, possibilities. It's in the center of the city, we're 150 meters away from the presidential palace. So it's a mystery why this amphitheater had never been used. Back in 1976, I suppose there were financial issues involved, and I suppose that after that, there was a shift of priorities as far as cultural politics are concerned in this country. So this was a big priority for the works we've done, and of course, it's a very important instrument of extrovert activity for the conservatoire. It's, it's a place where artists meet and not only artists actually because this is important also as a place where discussions are organized. For instance, our first event was IMED, an organization about journalism and freedom of journalism around the world. Slink down the stone staircase and a number of other spaces reveal themselves as well as an open cultural space that was once co-opted by the National Museum of Contemporary Arts, we also find another, more compact venue. This is the new stage. It's a very useful space. You can be very loud here without uh, disturbing anybody because it's conceived like a box in a box, so the walls of this room don't touch the structure itself. So you can be as naughty as, as you like. And this is also a space which can be separated in three parts with uh, panels which come out here. So you can have three discussion rooms or three smaller rehearsal rooms. It can also function as a cinema. So we have tried to keep this as versatile as possible. So the new stage and the amphitheater, they're part of this new renovation. Exactly. How did that come about? Was it just, it's been a priority for a long time and you finally got the funding? Why is it happening now? The story is, uh, goes as follows. Back in 2012, in the financial crisis, uh, the conservator was in a very bad situation. So the current administration made the last attempt to rescue things because the debts were huge, public funds were not available, and so on and so on. Then it started with this thought that we are a very rich, poor <laughs> institution. Poor in the sense that we don't have cash at all, rich in the sense that this building, which is 14,000 square meters in the center of the city, sitting on one of the most expensive grounds in Greece, is ours. We had the help of uh, teams of architects and uh, people that really were interested in helping us out, probably for one reason, because the concept of Despotopoulos was a very interesting concept and the personality of Despotopoulos it's one of the most emblematic figures of Greek modernism there are two major buildings in Athens 
inspired by the Bauhaus movement. The one is by the big master of the Bauhaus tradition, Walter Gropius, and this is the American Embassy. The second one is this one, the Conservatoire. This is a building which introduced in Greece concepts which are very common today, like visible elements, we don't hide the concrete elements, and also functionality. Function goes before aesthetics. So it's a very special building. The design is extremely enigmatic in many ways, but you have the feeling that inside this architecture, the architect has embedded possibilities which we are discovering now 50 or 60 years after it was designed. Walking next along the perimeter of the building, we find an initiative that runs short educational classes for children, much to local Athenian parents' delight, and below this research group Democritos are busy setting up an interactive exhibition that aims to help us spot a demagogue. But what about the building's original purpose? It's time to head up to the conservatoire. So here we have the first floor. 140 metres long with these two corridors with classrooms right and left. And this is where most of the teaching takes place. There are also some other spaces, especially for the theatre downstairs. But this is where the schools have always been. This is the ballet. fourth year now uh, this school functions and uh, it uh, trains professionals and professional teachers and professional dancers too you have exams for percussion (laughs) this exam time now the completion of this hall is also uh, financed by a private society so there's lots of private money that uh, has come in uh, project Okay, if, if nothing works, we can at least use these corridors as a gym. <laughs> the final stop on today's tour is the underbelly of the beast. To give me an idea of the sheer scale of operations this building requires, with phone torches to hand, we arrive at the long concrete tunnel of the conservatoire's basement. It's very long. It's like a ship. <laughs> it also shows probably the ambition of this building and might also explain why this ambition was not met. I must tell you that this building is only a small part of a big architectural project that never was realized. It was designed back in the 1950s by Despotopoulos, who won an international competition for the creation of the Athens Cultural Center a big thing, including the Greek Opera House, including a museum, including a hotel, and so on and so on. Well, this project was never realized. Maybe it was too ambitious, or maybe it was too early for such a thing, but the only part of this project that was built was the conservatoire. But you see, this is a small part of the big cultural project of that time, and this is already huge, so one can see that the people back then were thinking big. Maybe it was too big for those times. Who knows? It's almost too big now. (laughs) Well, but it's useful now, you see. The success of the cultural venues here can be seen in the fact that 
we are co-producing and collaborating with um, all the other big cultural institutions like the Athens Opera, like the Stegi of the Onassis Foundation, like the Athens Festival now. You know, we have an amphitheater of 600 seats and 500 meters away you have the Athens Megaron, which has five superb concert halls. So although our amphitheater was older, it wouldn't have made any sense to make of it a classical music venue. Instead of which, we try to keep it as open as possible to other tenancies. And this is also the situation is related to the philosophy of our artistic program. It also feels like it has to do with the philosophy of the building as well, in a sense. It does. So future-looking the whole time and very outward and open. This is what, following the experience here, I start to think of as a successful architectural plan. It's something which obliges you to go on, which shows you the way. It's not neutral. Nothing's neutral here. For Monocle in Athens, I'm Paige Reynolds. We head stateside now for a stop in Nebraska. Nestled just by the Missouri River and close to the Iowa border, the city of Omaha is having a bit of a revival. Head to its downtown and you'll find an array of major developments under construction or about to break ground, all looking to revitalise the city and bring retail, commercial, housing and better transit to the area. One project that is part of this vision is Steelhouse Omaha, a new purpose-built concert venue intimately merging the physical space with sound. To find out more, earlier I caught up with the project's lead architect, Stephen Chu, who's a design principal at Eniad Architects. I started by asking him about the considerations he had to make to ensure that this wasn't just a new cultural space, but actually became a vital part of the community. Basically, the reason for this project is not only to add to the vibrancy of downtown, which is a mission of Omaha Performing Arts, but also because as a performing arts institution and similar to many performing arts institutions, the question right now is how do we connect with the future, the youth? The traditional forms, concert hall, pure acoustic halls are still wonderful, beautiful. We still design them, but there's less and less young people going to them. So the idea here for Omaha Performing Arts is to expand their existing facility that we did with a pure concert hall and recital hall to address and be more welcoming to a wider range of audiences. And that is specifically in this building to address younger populations in their 20s and early 30s. Perhaps just describe for the listeners today a little bit about the Steelhouse. What's the scale of the building? What does it involve? So Steelhouse, as a family member of what is a campus of performing arts downtown, is a city block. It's around 100,000 square feet in size. The house itself, which is the music venue, is a long span, large volume space that can be flexible, but is built with the intent to accommodate amplified music as opposed to the pure acoustic hall, which is across the street. The volume of that space is really guided by the target number of occupants and really the volume needed to accommodate the amount of power that amplified music and bass can create. So we're talking about a 50-foot tall room that's approximately 100 feet wide and about 150 feet deep, and it has a balcony in it. 
One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today is because not only are you thinking about you know, the physical space, but those things you're hinting at, the noise that comes from a, a band, the acoustic elements that are needed in architecture when you create a building like this. How much is this as much a kind of a, a feat of engineering, of acoustic engineering, as thinking about the actual physical space and the shape of the building? It's everything, Andrew. So the thing that I think is wonderful about this typology of building is that it is in many ways like a Swiss watch. Everything has to be considered. This building type works like a machine. There's moving parts. There's equipment that work with it, have to be integrated. The scale of the building aesthetically needs to be addressed on the exterior for civic presence. The inside walls are all accommodating a certain amount of reflection of sound and absorption of sound. So the acoustic properties are performance driven. It's a building type that needs to look great, but also perform really well. There are many factors that are involved in that design. That is the acoustics, the technical side of equipment, and really just even the physical act of a band like the Killers who opened for the building that came with four tractor trailers had to get into the dock, load onto the stage, all their equipment, plug and play. One of the success stories I could say is that the Killers came played their set an hour and a half, and within less than an hour and a half, they were completely gone and out of the venue. That's incredible that you can have that kind of production come into the building, load, and then unload when they're done and get out, plug and play. The building provides a lot of the accommodations they need so they don't have to transport 20 tractor trailers or a whole bunch of equipment and crew to do that work. So the building, as I said, is designed to be a machine to accommodate touring performers. Now, if it can accommodate a big production, it can accommodate smaller productions that are more intimate that are within the house as well. And just tell me, you know, for a city like Omaha, it's not a small city, it's got some 480,000 plus people. But what does it mean having a venue like this and being on the network of places that these bands like The Killers do stop at? Does it help then the city keep and attract a younger generation? Does it give the city a bit more confidence about its cultural cachet? Because I presume that what you're doing is, you know, it's always fascinating when you make an individual building or even a campus, but it's what flows beyond the space as well, which is always intriguing. Yeah. So again, that was another factor that was considered the size of the venue was done with careful market research. So there was a gap in the marketplace for venues of this type purpose built that really accommodated perfectly the type of performances that are touring. Mid-size venue, not the large 15, 20,000 size arena style, but this is fitting the need in the marketplace for a niche and really an opportunity for bands that are already known to either play in a smaller venue or for bands that are up and coming to launch from here. One of the goals and mission of Omaha Performing Arts was to create this venue to not just bring talent and energy and ticket buyers to OPA and to downtown, but provide a venue that allowed community groups to perform there too. So to that, the calendar is scheduled so that it provides ahead of time blank spots, opportunities for OPA to bring in community members, all kinds of experimental performances, dance, musical theater. The room is a flat floor orchestra with a raised stage, which gives a lot of flexibility We built in two large telescopic seating units that can come out and create 
various types of seating arrangements, including runway and stage, center stage, for more intimate performances as well. And tell me, I know that when I looked at your client list, you, know, you have a huge amount of university projects, of, of museum projects. Is this a, an interesting new extension for you, or, or have you always been involved in this music space? I work on variety of typology as a design principal at INEAD, but this is my specialization, is performing arts. It is a big umbrella, though, because through almost 30 years of working here at INEAD, I've seen a lot of different typologies. So there's different types of uses which completely affect the room design, meaning everything from pure acoustic house to amplified, which is in this case, the other extreme. So this is a unique project and as there aren't a lot of this specific type of use that are purpose-built. There's a lot of renovations, retrofits in order to accommodate certain types of uses like this, but it's rare that you get the opportunity to make something really sing and work really well because the venue of a scale requires a lot of coordination with even just bringing those trucks into the dock. We spend a lot of time designing the load-in process. It's something that is sort of an internal joke is that when we're designing performing arts venues, one of the most important things is how to load the stage <laughs> and avoid breakdowns that lifts will sometimes risk happening. So without any need for lifts, you come right in with the truck, you can load, there's not any risk of, you can imagine what would happen. Your performers are due to go on stage and the lift breaks. <laughs> <laughs> That's disastrous for performing arts. Stephen Chu, a design principal at Eniad Architects there. This is The Urbanist. And finally today, we're in London. Denmark Street used to be the centre of the British capital's music business, a short, slender passage off Charing Cross Road, home to studios, labels, publishers, sheet music sellers and guitar shops. Most of what gave Denmark Street its reputation as London's own tin pan alley is gone, but the guitar shops are still mostly there, as our contributor and avid guitar player Andrew Muller reports. A short while ago, I had a guitar strings emergency. Martin Phillips of legendary New Zealand indie rock pathfinders The Chills was coming to Midori House to record a song for us. He had not brought an acoustic guitar with him on The Chills' current tour, so I offered to lend him mine, and realised, as I did, that the strings on it were in such a state as to constitute a tetanus risk. There was only one place to go. On my way into work, I dismounted the central line at Tottenham Court Road and made my way to Denmark Street. There's not really a whole lot to Denmark Street. If you start near St Giles Circus, the first thing you see is 6060 Sounds, which seems to specialise, as well as in vintage guitars, rather less vintage leather jackets with an awful lot of unnecessary studs on them. Walking along a bit further, you get closer to a, a venerable Denmark Street institution like Hanks, which builds itself as London's most famous guitar store. Uh, they may not be wrong about that, but there's some fairly high-end merchandise in the window here. There's a 1964 Fender Jaguar for the thick end of five grand, Gibson Les Paul for even more than that. On the opposite side of the road now, there's a very fancy-looking cafe, which would certainly not have been a fixture of Denmark Street circa 
its glory days when the kind of musicians who used to frequent this alleyway were certainly not possessed of the wherewithal that allowed them to eat at places called things like Chateau Denmark. And in fact, it does now occur to me that that combination of Chateau and Denmark is something of a contradiction in terms, unless it's one of these new French-Danish fusion places that we're reading so much about. On the opposite side of the road for me right now, in fact, there is a guided tour of Denmark Street going on. It does still have a certain cachet among particular music obsessives who want to come and see the street in which Elton John and Bernie Taupin may have collaborated and in which the Sex Pistols once squatted. Standing now in front of Regent Sounds, which certainly, judging by the signage above the shop, is one of Denmark Street's older institutions. And on the left now, one Joe Guitars, of, of which I have been myself a repeat customer, quite tempted by a couple of things in their window right now. There's a 1950s airline, 1300 quid, proper vintage-looking guitar that you can well imagine Bill Haley having once strummed rock around the clock on. Denmark Street was once the heart of London's music business, a hive of labels, publishers, studios and venues. Most of those are no longer there, but the guitar shops have endured. I've bought several guitars on Denmark Street. There was an unwieldy black Gibson 335 copy, which I think I eventually sold back to the same shop for much less than I'd paid for it. Then there was a black Fender Telecaster copy, an absolute hound of a thing, which I gave to a friend who reckoned he'd be able to keep it in tune longer than one run through Take the Skinheads Bowling. Take the skinheads bowling, take them bowling. I still own three Denmark Street purchases. The somewhat ridiculous but very pretty Crafter Acoustic I restrung for Martin Phillips. It's fretboard inlaid with mother-of-pearl cowboys and cactuses. A handsome candy apple red 1980s Fender Telecaster and a gorgeous limited edition Gretsch 5120, custom painted by hot rod artist Jimmy C. Equal parts, musical instrument and work of pop art. But if you want the real sound of Denmark Street, of course, you actually have to go into one of its shops. Let's give that a try. In No Tom Guitars, I spoke to Jacob Smith. In No Tom's window currently hang such treasures as a 1965 Fender Mustang, a 1967 Fender Coronado, and a 1968 example of that old-school headbanger's delight, the Gibson Les Paul Goldtop, for just short of 12 grand. We tend to specialise predominantly in vintage guitars. Um, we had a very strong workforce, including a workshop downstairs with three master luthiers. We insure... We specify, we go through instruments, we sell instruments, we buy, we consign. And yeah, we value. That's what we do. How important, though, to the business is the cluster of guitar shops on Denmark Street? The competition doesn't actually hurt any of the businesses. Do you think you all thrive from the fact that this is where people know they have to come if they want to buy a guitar? 100%. It's a very healthy competition. Each shop is independent and we all have our own niche. However, I believe if we weren't on Denmark Street and we were bricks and water outside of London, it would be a very difficult time. Uh, majority of our business is tourism, as well as footfall from the general public, and without that it would be much harder to survive. You do get people coming to Denmark Street because they've heard about Denmark Street and they're, and they're curious about it? Absolutely. A lot of tourism. Now, 
majority of tourism is, I would say, throughout the summer. We do get it year-round, but it's more popular in the summer, of course, everyone on holidays. So we do very well with tourism. So I'm grateful since COVID that tourism is back in action. However, without tourism, we would still survive and we do still sell a lot to the English public. But tourism is a big part of our business. So without being on Denmark Street and without having the landmarks such as the Sex Pistols old uh, rehearsal cottage and uh, residences for a short while, people wouldn't come and see. Just finally then, what's the fanciest item you've got on sale just at the moment? Should any of our listeners be suddenly tempted? Well, one of them, uh, which is just sold unfortunately, but as you can maybe out hear a guitar playing in the background, is has a £40,000 pre-war Martin D18, which is 100% original. And behind you is a 52, also 100% original Blackguard Telecaster for 60000 This would be, obviously, at the more eccentric end of the spontaneous Denmark Street purchase, but the magic of this tiny alley is that there's always something you go away thinking about, trying to find a way to justify to yourself. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. That's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week and subscribe to Monocle magazine at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Stardust with Music Sounds Better With You. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Mm-hmm.